Father, bless these words to our hearts in Jesus' name. Turn in your Bibles, please, to Micah chapter 6. In verse 8, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. Now, in Habakkuk 2.4, humbly simply means to justly by faith. Okay, so if a person is humble, they're living by faith. That's really what he's talking about when he says, walk humbly, live by faith, walk by faith. Now, Dr. Stevens, in one of his classes, said, the only thing you need to learn to do is understand his justice and love. And that is a very good statement. The only thing you really need, and this is really what Micah is saying here in verse 8, The only thing you really need, this is also what's required of you, to understand his justice and his love. Now, he phrases it a little bit differently, but really the meaning is the same. Understand God's justice and understand God's love. In Luke chapter 11, in verse 42, Jesus said, Woe to you Pharisees. Watch out when Jesus, when God says, Woe to you. Woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe and mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the other. You neglected justice, you neglected love, you ought not have done that. The most important part of our walk with God is justice and love. And we don't always understand why. We think to ourselves, yes, God is just, but God is merciful, and that deals with the justice. The blood of Christ, the finished work, deals with God's justice, right? His justice was satisfied on the cross, right? That's really not a very good understanding of what the justice of God means. As a finished work, born-again believer, as somebody, hopefully, who is not in sin... We all need to know God's justice, we need to understand it, and we need to understand God's love. Because if we do not understand God's justice, we will not understand how to have a life with Him. If we do not understand the love of God, we will not have the energization that we need from the Holy Spirit to have a life with Him. Now, in the original language, there's a couple of different words for justice. Justice isn't always translated as justice. Here, when it says to do justly, it's not actually justice the way we think of it. It's the word mishpat. And I'm going to quote from the theological word book of the Old Testament because they have a very good definition of it here. It said mishpat represents what is doubtless the most important idea for correct understanding of government, whether of man by man or of the whole creation by God. Though rendered, quote, judgment in most of the 400 or so appearances of Mishpat in the Hebrew Bible, the rendering is often defective for us modern by reason of our novel way of distinctly separating legislative, executive, and judicial functions and functionaries in government. Hence, shepat, the common verb from which our word mishpat is derived, meaning to rule or to govern, referring to all functions of government, is erroneously restricted to judicial process only whereas both the verb and the noun include all of these functions. When he's talking about justice, or really judgment, he's talking about government. When Jesus said judge righteous judgment, he's talking about government. Have a righteous, have a faith response to the government of God. If I don't know how to have a faith response to the government of God, I may be saved, I may be sincere, but I'll never enter into the victory that God has for me. I'll never know how to utilize and be benefited by the word of God in the practicalities of life. 
Categorical doctrine, for example. Categorical doctrine is God's mind for every possible situation. Well, if I don't have the government of God because I have response to categorical doctrine, how is God's mind for every situation going to benefit me? How am I going to get any kind of a use out of it? How am I going to get any kind of help from it? If I don't know it, if I don't understand it, and if I don't respond accordingly to it. People say, yeah, I'm a Christian. But they're Christians in name, and maybe they are saved. That's not for me to evaluate. That's for no one to evaluate. God will figure that out at the end. But people say, I'm a Christian, yet they don't have categorical faith responses. And that necessarily means they don't have a government in their life functioning. Now, we like the ideas that are warm and fuzzy. We like the idea of, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven when I die, I'm going to see loved ones who are saved in heaven, and that's true and that's wonderful, and everyone should enjoy that. But how many people say, I'm saved, I'm going to lay down my life. If he says, who will go for me, I'll say, here am I, send me. How many people say, God, your will not my be done? How many people say, God... Direct my steps in every situation. Keep me in your perfect will. Whether I like it or not, it's not about me. It's about your government, your kingdom, your will, your purpose. I'm your possession. I was purchased with a price. My life is not my own. How many people say that? I hear more people say, yeah, I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. I'm going to see my family. I'm going to be with God for eternity. Heaven is going to be wonderful. Amen. Yes, it is. But how many people say the other? Because that is equally involved in being saved. And if you want to enjoy the one, you have to receive the other. If you want to benefit and enjoy the benefits from the kingdom of God, then you have to receive the fullness of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a kingdom. That means there's a king. That means there's a government. That means there's a throne. That means there's a certain way of doing this with God in order for it to be successful. So when he says, what is required of you, but to have faith responses toward a government of God, as you're guided in all truth by the Holy Spirit, so that he can show you the path that you are to take. Watch out for people saying, well, I have common sense. Watch out for people saying, well, I can decide, can't I? Don't ever say that to yourself. And people say, well, that's very rigid, isn't it? Well, nobody's telling you if you should buy a Ford or a Toyota. Although you might want to ask God. But as pastor, I don't really care if you buy a Ford or a Toyota. But when it comes to the will of God, when it comes to the purpose of God, when it comes to the call of God, that's a whole other story. The call of God, which is the administration of the government of God within your life, in the details of life and your practical circumstances, contains three primary elements. Those are a local assembly, In other words, whatever you're called to, wherever you're called, whatever it is, you're going to be called to a specific local assembly. Not just any old church. The church on the corner, unless you're called there, that church will not do. You might be called to travel an hour, two hours a day just to get to the church you're called to. And if it's that troublesome to you, then why don't you move closer? Because it's about the call of God. It's not about your convenience. So, the first element of a call of God is always a local assembly. Everyone is called who is a born-again believer to a specific local assembly. Now, God will take you and bring you into your call, if you are willing. I know people who traveled halfway across the world, literally, to enter the specific local assembly that they were called to. 
I know people who are looking for an assembly and God wouldn't allow them to enter into the assembly they were looking for, the church they were looking for. He kept bringing back because he got them lost in town. He kept bringing them back no matter which way they were going, right in front of the same church and turned out that's the way they were called. They were from out of state. God will bring you into the right local assembly if you are willing. The right local assembly, a specific one, not anyone, a specific one, one that will be able to develop you as a believer, one that will utilize your portion, one that will utilize other portions specifically for you. I'm not saying that it's better than other assemblies. I'm saying that you are called to a specific one. That is the place where God will develop you. That is the place where he will nourish you. That is the first element of everybody's call. Now, when I say first element, I'm not saying most important. I'm just saying the first one we're talking about. The second element is a specific pastor-teacher. Everyone is called to one pastor-teacher. You are not called to two pastors at a time. If something happens and maybe your pastor is taken home to be with the Lord, God will give you another pastor, but you will always have specifically one pastor-teacher. You are not called to receive from five pastor-teachers, two pastor-teachers. You are not called to receive from anybody you want. You can receive other portions, don't get me wrong, but the call is to one. And that's the pastor that defines things for you. Why? Because if you do not have one pastor teacher specifically that you receive from, then you're going to be blown about by every window doctor. You will be very unstable. I'm not saying he's better than the rest, but that's the one you listen to. There's so many nuances within churches of the way that they deal with doctrine. There's so many different emphasis within different churches. Now, there is only one interpretation of the Word of God, but there's multiple applications. Some churches have an emphasis on certain things, while other churches have an emphasis on other things. Collectively, the body of Christ gives a full emphasis of Christ. But that's perfectly fine. Some churches are strong on the finished work. Other churches are strong on mercy. Other churches are strong, let's say, on the blood. Some churches are strong in areas of sowing. Other churches, now everybody should be doing some of these things. I'm not saying that they're excused from any of it. But some churches are particularly strong with it. Other churches might be particularly strong with apologetics. You are called to one pastor teacher. In our church, we're strong with science and with mechanism. And that is an emphasis that we see and God has shown us is very important. I'm not expecting that every church does things our way. God forbid, God is not one-dimensional. You are called to one pastor teacher. Now, after you define who that one pastor teacher is, he's the one who defines doctrine for you. He's the one who is the architect of your faith, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. After you find that one pastor teacher, you are free to receive from other portions. You are free to fellowship with other believers in other churches. You are free even to visit if you want to. But where are you called? That is the place you remain. That is home. And if another pastor is contradicting what your pastor is saying, and it's not necessarily me, if I'm contradicting what the pastor that is your call to is saying, he may have a different emphasis or a different application for the doctrines that he's teaching that are necessary in his church. You go with what your pastor is telling you. Likewise, in this church, if another pastor is contradicting us, he may simply be looking at another emphasis, but God is giving us this emphasis. You go with what this pastor is telling you. Otherwise, it will lead to confusion. However, 
there's a lot of things that is not like that. A lot of things where you simply can receive from somebody because what they're saying is edifying. Be edified. You listen to somebody on the radio and they're doctrinally correct and they're saying good stuff, go ahead and feel free to listen to them. There's nobody that says you can't fellowship with people just because they're not in the same church as you are. You can't fellowship them if they're starting negativity, but that's not negativity. You can't fellowship with them if they're denying cardinal doctrines, but they're probably not denying cardinal doctrines. You are called to one pastor teacher. That's the second element. The third element is a geographical call. God has you in a specific location. That location is meaningful. It's important. Let's say as a pastor, I don't honor the geographical aspect of my call. Then how are the people that I'm supposed to reach, that God has given to be in my ministry, how are they ever going to be reached in my ministry? If a person who is not a pastor is careless with their geographical component of their call, how are they going to receive from the local assembly and the specific pastor that they're called to? How are they going to minister to the people that they're called to minister to? How are they going to win the loss that they're called to win? And people will say something stupid like, well, if I don't do it, somebody else will do it. God will find somebody else. That's dumb. Frankly, that's dumb. God wants to give you the heathen and it's an inheritance and you want to give your inheritance to somebody else. What are you, nuts? That's dumb. The judgment, the justice judgment of God, that aspect of the justice of God is government. There is a will, and I respond to that will. God says do this, and I do it. God says don't do that, and I don't do it. Now, the last two messages, and this is not a continuation of those two, we talked about what happens if I choose to go against the government of God specifically. In other words, God says in his word, I'm to do or not do something, and I choose to do differently. At that point, I'm entering Satan's domain. There are the two kingdoms. I'm either drawing near to God's kingdom or I'm drawing near to Satan's kingdom. There are only the two kingdoms. So I'm either responding in faith to the government of God or, and most people don't recognize this, they think they're going into a middle ground somewhere. Well, it's okay. Or my favorite is, well, I don't believe that. Did you know God doesn't give a hooey what you believe or don't believe? He really doesn't. That is nowhere on God's radar. All that I don't believe that means is that you've disappeared from time for that period of time. That's all it means. Psalm 103.12, Revelation 1.5. You've disappeared from time. I don't believe that. Who made you God? If the Word of God says something, well, I don't see it that way. That's called private interpretation. That's another form of unbelief. You know, people do nutty things. They really do. They do nutty things. And Christians are not immune to nutty things. I don't believe. I don't agree. You recognize the commonality there? I elevated. My own opinion elevated. My thought elevated. How Habakkuk 2 forces that the soul that is lifted up is not upright in him. The just live by faith. You can't redefine the Bible, the Word of God, the mind of God, with your preferences. People have pet sins. Some people love rock music. Ooh, I just took on some toes out there. Some people love rock music. Well, you know what? Rock music does not glorify God. Well, what if it's Christian rock? Christian, you can't even understand what they're saying, but it's the same demonic beat as the rest of it. It's still the same elevation and energization of the flesh, the old sin nature. It still takes you into an energized sin state. More people's lives have been destroyed by rock music in the last 70 years. 
They enter into drugs. They enter into immorality, fornication. They enter into all kinds of evil by rock music. Don't tell me that's okay with God. It doesn't glorify him. It doesn't reflect his nature. It doesn't reflect his image. It doesn't reflect anything about him. It does reflect the ultimate nature. Or alcohol is another one. It's the hardest thing to get Christians to break the booze habit. I don't know why. Christians love their booze. They really do. When I was in Bible college, the Bible college president and vice president went to a certain place in the south where there was a huge convention of one of the largest denominations in this country. They went to the restaurant where this was being held. It was some hotel with a big meeting room there. They went to the restaurant at the hotel, and the waiter told them, I've never seen people drink so much alcohol in my life. I love God as they're stumbling around. Well, the Bible says don't even look at the wine when it's red. It says wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging. You're telling me he's okay with this? If you look at it from a biological perspective, all it does is put holes in your brain cells. Alcohol is devastating to your DNA, and it's devastating to your cell membrane. That's why you get drunk. You've just damaged your brain. By the way, the damage does not get undone. You just get rewired. That can work for a little while, but it does not work indefinitely. And you're telling me God is okay with this when your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and you're filling it with poison? Excuse me, what would you do if somebody did that to your house? People have these pet sins. And they say to God and that sin, no, I'm not going to do what you said. I'm going to do because I don't believe that. And God said, okay, welcome to familiar spirits. Now remember, familiar spirits are not the same thing as familiarity. Familiar spirits are a category of demons. Welcome to Satan's kingdom as you're being manipulated and controlled by demonic activity with demons that seem friendly to you. Just like that girl with the spirit of divination. That demon seemed friendly. It wasn't. A demon is never friendly. But they can seem like it. When God says, do justly, he's saying, walk specifically in the governmental authority of the word of God. That's doing justly. In Isaiah 59:14, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. By the way, this is talking about our days. For truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. Now this word justice is not mishpat. It's not judgment. This word is fidet. And it's God's character becoming the ultimate standard of human conduct. So now we have two things under the category of justice. We have the correct understanding of God's government. In other words, God's government ruling over your life by categorical doctrine being applied in the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And then there is also God's character being the ultimate standard of our conduct. We live in the character of God. One of the reasons why this age is such a mess is because people have turned away from the character of God. Now, the character of God is a character of truth. It's a character of love. It's a character of holiness. The character of God is not a character of confusion. It's not a character of preference. And it's not a character of sin. The character of God's lacking is why you have school systems telling six-year-old little boys or girls that they are the opposite gender and trying to sneak around behind the parents' back, 
trying to transition those children who don't actually understand the significance of what it is that they're a boy or a girl. They just know they are a boy or a girl. And in some of those cases, at least, I believe in most of those cases, at least, you have a little boy or girl who is being deliberately confused by some pervert in the school system. Maybe the little kid has gender dysphoria, but they'd have to understand what gender is first before they could have the dysphoria. In other words, they would have to understand first, which you don't have at a five- or six-year-old age, beyond the obvious, that a little girl and a little boy are not the same thing. And then these perverts try to take it to the government and the perverted people in the government, in some cases, support it. I just read about a case like this yesterday where the perverts, this is in one of the states, the perverts in the government try to oppose the parents, support the perverts in the school system, trying to force this child to undergo physical sex change, and they're not even 10 years old. That's not the character of God. That's not justice. Where you have a lack of governmental doctrine, where you have a lack of God's government functioning, you will have Satan's government functioning. Now, I don't care if you don't like it on the internet. I don't care if this offends you. I don't care if you want to call me a bigot or whatever it is that you want to call me. You're an idiot if you go in there anyway. My thought is this, and this is what the Bible says, a boy is a boy, a girl is a girl, and never the twain shall be confused. Nature, genetics, God's creation, God's purpose, God's plan, never changed the plan for the first time in the history of mankind. Well, let me make it politically well correct. In the first time of peoplehood, a man can be a woman or the woman can be a man, and now you can decide which you are depending on what your natural preference is. God doesn't care what your natural preference is. He made you the way he made you, and he's the one who made you. And your genetics attest to that. But then again, the Bible does call them fools. So what should we expect? When God calls you a fool, you know you are one. Now, justice, God's character reflected in us, is the foundation of righteousness. It's the foundation of truth, and it's the foundation of uprightness. That's what Isaiah 59.14 is telling us here. Now, the finished work is integral in the justice of God. In Psalm 51.14, David prays from deliverance of guilt based on the finished work of Christ. And he received it. That was the justice of God. The reflection within you of God's nature. Because God's character is the standard of human conduct and God calls it justice. In Genesis 16.5, Sarah said to Abram, The Lord judge between you and me. The Lord judge between you and me. This is after that little event with her handmaid, where God gave Abram a promise that he would have a son. Sarah was way too old. Abraham was way too old. And she says to him, why don't you take my handmaid? So Abraham takes her, gets her pregnant. She has a son now, and she's taunting Sarah. And Sarah says to Abraham, God judge between you and me. Now, that is also a judgment of God. And we think to ourselves, that means God separates between you and me and decide who's right and who's wrong. The problem is that Sarah right there admitted that it was her wrong. In that passage, she admitted it was her that was wrong. It wasn't a question, God judge who's right or wrong. She should have never given him Hagar to begin with. This form of judgment is not to reach a decision. It's to restore a relationship. Correct 
judgment restores relationship. God brings judgment into our lives not to reach a decision, not to determine guilt or innocence, not to say right or wrong. The judgment of God restores relationship. So Sarah said to her husband, our relationship has been damaged because I gave you my handmaid Hagar, you had a kid with her. God restore this relationship. That's judgment. Justice and judgment do not come apart from relationship. They are manifested in relationship. And when it's a correct form of justice and it's a correct form of judgment, then the relationships become healthy if they were unhealthy and are maintained if they were healthy. You always need the correct form of judgment in order to have correct relationship. And again, it's not to decide right or wrong. It's not to decide good or evil. It's not to decide any kind of a thing at all between the two. You are this and I am that. It's simply the restoration of relationship because you are now functioning both under the same governing principle. In Psalm 89.14, justice, this one is Sadak, this is the one that the character of God is the ultimate standard of our conduct. So, Sedek and judgment, Mishpat, this is the fullness of the government of God, are the habitation of your throne. And then he says, mercy and truth shall go before your face. Mercy is the word hesed. And it means steadfast loving kindness. Truth is the word emet, and it's faithfulness connected to loving kindness. Truth is what makes mercy steadfast. Truth is why we will always receive mercy from God. Truth is why, in Hebrews 4.16, if I come boldly to the throne of grace, which is God's throne, I will receive steadfast loving kindness. It's because of truth. Now, justice, judgment, and love are what we're looking at here. Steadfast loving kindness is an expression of love. So justice, judgment, and love. When I have justice and love, what I have is actually justice, judgment, and love. Justice is the royal office. Judgment is the process of that office. And love is the standard upon which the other two are established. If I understand justice, then I'm understanding the office and the process of that office. That is to say, God's royal kingship. If I understand justice, I understand what it means to operate under the kingdom of God in the practical sense. If I understand love, I possess what it takes for me to practically operate in that kingdom. So, Micah says, what is required of you? Justice, mercy, and humility. You operate in the royal kingdom and the processes of the royal kingdom of God. You operate with the standard upon which you enter into that kingdom of God. And you do it through faith application. That's what's required of you. In Psalm 16.6, by mercy and truth, iniquity is purged. Now, iniquity is, in its most basic definition, self-orientation. That, in Psalm 94.20, is Satan's throne. 
Jesus has a throne of grace. Satan has a throne of iniquity. Self-orientation is the means by which Satan's government is implemented in a believer's life. It's no light matter what took place in the Garden of Eden. That after they ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they became self-oriented. That was the very purpose because then they were operating in Satan's kingdom. The way that you purge it is mercy and truth. In other words, the way that you purge it is that steadfast loving kindness. Now, yes, you do need to make choices. Yes, you do need to operate in the kingdom of God. But without that steadfast kindness and God's faithfulness is related to that steadfast loving kindness, you'll never be able to operate in the kingdom of God. Practically, you won't have what it takes. Why? Because in Jeremiah 31.3, it's loving kindness that draws you. Loving kindness is not only your energization, it's also your motivation. And it's not a motivation of your activity, it's the motivation of your response. God draws you by manifesting tremendous loving kindness and you find it irresistible and your response will be drawn by it. The fear of the Lord is where we depart from evil. In other words, when we have this loving kindness, then our regard for God will bring us into his government out of Satan's government. In Hebrews 8.10, This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds. I will write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is the outcome of do justly, love mercy, walk humbly. Where God puts his law that is to say, his governing principles, precepts, into our mind, into our frame of reference. In other words, we think with them, they become the foundation of all our relationships, all our interactions, all our thoughts, even of our emotions. And now, he will be our God. We'll respond to him. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord and not do what I tell you? Now we will do what he tells us. Now he truly is our God. And we truly are his people. Because we have the government, the process of the government, and the standard by which we enter into that government in our volition, in our consciousness, in our thinking, in our emotions, in our identity. We have it as the basis of our thoughts, and we have it as the thoughts that we have themselves. Now he's our God, and now we're his people. Amen? If you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior, and you don't know where you're going to go when you die, simply pray, Dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I receive you as my Savior. Thank you for loving me so much that you died for me, so I can have eternal life with you. Amen. The heart is probably the single most thing that you possess. It is your frame of reference. That is correct. The heart is the frame of reference. And it is the foundation of all thinking. It's the basis that you establish for thought. I think the clearest way to think about the heart is think about a young child, maybe a toddler, and mom or dad tell them something. And that becomes their reality. That's the heart. 
it becomes the foundation for everything else that's received. And if it doesn't agree with the original foundation, it's rejected. For example, mom says to the kid, do not play in the street. You can play in the yard, you cannot play in the street. And so the child now knows yard is safe, street is not. A kid comes says, let's play in the street. And the kid is automatically like, no, mom said not to play in the street. That heart, that initial foundational thought provided a conviction. The kid may rebel against what mom said for reasons like perhaps peer pressure or whatever, you know, whatever other reason. Peer pressure is probably the biggest with kids. But the conviction was there. They can either go with the conviction, mom said, this is the foundation, this is my heart, or they can harden their heart. In other words, they can not go with the foundation. They cannot go with what they know as the basis. And if they harden their heart, they're going to go contrary, but it causes trouble. It causes damage. The heart becomes hard. It's not hard in the sense that we think of hard and soft. It's hard in the sense of now the heart is not functioning correctly. It's no longer giving the foundational conviction, the foundational thought that it's supposed to. For example, a human heart can have areas of hardening. It usually happens after something like a heart attack or heart disease of some kind. And an area of the heart will die and it's no longer functioning. It no longer contracts. And for a while, the rest of the heart can make it up, but eventually it can't. When that happens, the physical heart will swell because the muscle is working too hard. Just like a muscle in your arm will swell and get bigger if you work it hard, well, in your arm that might be desirable, but in the heart that is not desirable. And so then it becomes big and the whole thing, the actual beating of the heart can't function correctly because it depends on being just right. Well, in the heart that we talk about our spirit, you know, in spiritual terms, like in psychological terms, actually, in the heart, if you harden the heart, it does not function correctly. And it will no longer be able to sustain you eventually. For a while, you might be okay. There's areas that are hardened. There's areas that are not. Mom said, don't play in the street. She also said, don't mess with cigarettes. Okay, I'm not going to mess with cigarettes, but I'll go play in the street. Your heart is still functioning for a little while. But if it continues, if the decision to go against that continues, then the whole thing will become useless. And it will no longer sustain you. That person enters into a form of spiritual death. And so, this is really a serious matter, the heart. This is why the Word of God says, guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it come the issues of life, the matters that pertain to life. That which produces life or that which takes life comes out of the heart. Now, if I guard my heart, then there's really only one way for me to do that. How do you guard your heart? Because quite frankly, I mean, how do you not let things in? We're inundated in a world that's in the hands of the devil. The devil is the god of this world system. How do you not let things in? You turn on the television and forget it. 90% of that stuff should go right down the toilet. How do you not let things in? You could climb under a rock, but that's not productive. It's about focus. Guarding the heart is all about focus. If you do not have the right focus, you cannot guard your heart. So it is all about focus. 
Now, our focus is not meant to be horizontal. What do I mean by that? There's a vertical and a horizontal focus. What is a vertical? What is a horizontal focus? A vertical focus, it's a focus toward Christ, toward God. Seated above in heavenly places, that's where my focus is. A horizontal focus is on relationships, circumstances, anything that is around me. That's a horizontal focus. Guarding the heart requires a vertical focus. If you take on a horizontal focus, and some people think that taking on a horizontal focus is normal, it's natural, what else are you going to do? Yes, it's natural thinking. But natural thinking is not your friend. Okay, because that's thinking apart from the mind of Christ. And that is absolutely not your friend. That will hurt you so bad it's ridiculous. And so you want to think with God's thoughts. Okay, you want to have a focus on Christ. You want to have a perspective that is God's perspective. You want his thoughts in your frame of reference. In Ecclesiastes 3.11, that says he puts eternity in your heart. That means he gives you a foundation for thinking that comes from eternity. In other words, that comes from the kingdom of God, from heaven, from his thoughts. And you get this eternal perspective. That means that you're starting to think in terms, not of yourself and not of your circumstance, but in terms of God's plan and purpose. And that's a whole different ballgame than looking at things like, how does it affect me? How does it affect me? You cannot win. Even if you think it affects you well. That focus is a, by definition, losing focus. You can't win because you're never thinking in reality and it's only a matter of time till it hits something that will really knock you down if you are looking horizontally. One of the big issues people have, and this is very strongly related to guarding the heart, is other people. It can be circumstances but circumstances seem more easy for people than other people. Other people really bother people. Why? Probably because we're designed to have interaction with other people. I mean, so much so that your brain is programmed to see faces. You ever look at something and say, wow, that looks like a face. My carpet at home looks it's got all kinds of faces in it. You're constantly seeing faces even in things that are not living. Well, that looks like a face. That's because of the way your brain is designed. You are designed to see faces. If you don't see faces, there's something wrong with you. And that's that's real. That's a psychological situation. As a matter of fact, Hitler, this is an interesting little tidbit from history. Hitler went to art school. He wanted to be an artist at first. He went to art school. And he wasn't bad. And he had paintings that had people in them, but he, none of the paintings had a face. The people would never have a face. That's a psychological issue. And so he was a skilled artist in many respects. He would have done pretty well, probably. But that was very strange, and people noticed it. None of the people in his paintings have faces. And so our brain is geared toward faces. One of the biggest challenges for people is guarding the heart in terms of relationships. Because we think we're focused, and then we find an area where we're not. But we didn't know it was there until something triggered our realization of it. That's very risky. The best thing to do is settle the matter ahead of time. I'm going to be focused on Christ. Uh, that doesn't mean I don't have a job or anything like that. That just means that the Word of God is the foundation of my heart. When that takes place, my focus is maintained 
and that that focus will protect the word of God being the foundation of my heart. It'll guard the heart. The focus will guard it. If I have an orientation, a horizontal orientation, let's say with people, because that's probably the most common, then I'm going to have problems. If I have a horizontal orientation to circumstances also, I will have problems. But there are problems that don't need to exist. I'm going to enter into trials that are not trials that will reward me. They're trials as a result of sin. And it's not going to be outright sin. It's going to be sin, Romans 14.23 style sin, whatever is not of faith is sin. Because without maintaining focus, I will not maintain faith because I haven't guarded my heart and therefore, faith will not have a foundation. So my trials will come not as a matter of promotion or reward. It'll come because of sin. It'll actually be a form of chastisement that sin itself can chastise us. Wrong thinking is a type of sin that chastises people. And that will come where the heart is not guarded. Keeping the right focus will protect you. Now, what it will protect is not just your heart. It starts there. But it will also protect the five parts of your soul. And that's the important outcome. There are people with damaged souls. We don't think of it as a damaged soul, but it is. Most say, well, they have emotional problems. No, that's a damaged soul. They have identity issues. That's a damaged soul. Because it's one of the five parts of the soul. Damage the emotions, you damage the soul. Damage the mind, the way you think, you damage the soul. Damage your identity, you damage your soul, and so on. And so people who do not guard their heart will have a damaged soul. And they will be wounded as a result of the damage. Now, often when that happens, because somebody somewhere along the line, near you, not near you, it doesn't make any difference. Everybody has the potential, is going to disappoint you, they're going to hurt you, they're going to do something you don't like. And if your focus is not strictly vertical, then you will be damaged. If there's a horizontal element in there, that's where the enemy can get in. You'll say things like, well, I can't trust people because I got hurt by people. Well, those people in that church hurt me, therefore I can't trust people in churches, or some pastor somewhere wounded me, he said something unkind to me, and now I can't trust pastors. That's a wounded soul. Now, why is that person like that? Because they didn't maintain their focus. Now, here's the thing about trust, and this is a big one. We think of trust as something we should be able to have in people. If you have trust in people, you will not trust people at all. If you do not worry about trust in people, Jesus did not commit himself to man. He knew what was in the heart of men. If, on the other hand, your trust is strictly toward God, then people make no difference in that respect. They do in other respects. But they don't wound you. Because your focus is not on them. Your focus is on your Savior. Your focus is not on what they did, what they said. It's on the Savior. Now, here's the other part of a horizontal focus. A horizontal focus always comes through self-orientation. 
a vertical focus always comes through God orientation. In a horizontal focus, you cannot win. Why does the Word of God say He sent His Word and healed them? We've been talking about that the last two messages. He sent His Word and healed them. Why does the Word of God say that? Because the Word of God establishes the foundation for the heart whereby it gives you the capacity for a right focus. That right focus will then guard that heart. So what the Word of God can do is it can turn your focus. And therein is your healing. But because people, they don't realize this. It's the natural condition. That's the thing about it. The majority of people who enter into this have no idea that this is what's going on. And even if you, re even if they realize that this is what's going on, they have no idea how to deal with it. Because there's that self-oriented part of it. When we say self-orientation, there tends to be this outward negative connotation. It's not a good thing. But it's not the connotation we put on it either. In self-orientation, I become the standard for my life. And most people would say, well, even Christians would say, well, who else? And therein is the problem. That's why you can't see it. It seems very normal. It seems very natural. Well, who else? Well, who else is Christ? Self-orientation came only after eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And so, when I have Christ, when I maintain that focus, then the heart is protected. So, this is huge. This is huge. When I maintain the focus, the heart is protected. Things don't touch me. Why? Because I have a focus. My portion is not in other people. My portion is not in my circumstance. My portion isn't in things going my way. Things don't touch me because that's not my portion. I'm not looking for them to touch, not touch. I'm not looking toward them at all in that respect. I'm looking at my Savior and through eternal viewpoint, through his mind, I see other people. Well, if I see other people only through this mind of the Savior, then how are they going to hurt me? But that only comes with a guarded heart. And the guarded heart only comes with a vertical focus. If you bring up doctrine to somebody whose focus isn't correct, and they may not even realize that it's not because there's areas of their life where it is and areas of li their life where it isn't. They say, well, I believe God. It's not a question whether you believe Him. It's a question of your frame of reference. They'll say, I believe God, and they don't see it. That the focus isn't right. But it is a matter of focus. How do I get that focus? It's a John 15, 5 choice. Abide in the love of God and let the word of God abide in you because that's how you bear much fruit. Much fruit will only come when everything's working right, including your focus. That's a choice. Now, the key is in the word abide. Abiding is not merely receiving. I received the word of God and I got all kinds of problems, which a lot of people would say, if they're honest. It's not just receiving. Abiding is receiving, maintaining, possessing. So I don't allow thoughts to come in that distract my focus. It's the Second Corinthians 10.5. I take every thought into captivity. I cast down empty imaginations. Thoughts that are not from God, I don't entertain them. I don't tolerate them. 
I don't indulge them. That does take some discipline at first, especially. Eventually, it becomes much easier. But a person who's simply returning to that or has never even been there, was developing that, that does take mental discipline. And people don't like mental discipline. But it does require mental discipline. If I have that mental discipline, then everything's going to be a million times easier. But if a situation comes and I say, well, i got to avoid that situation. I mean, look at what it did to me. A situation? Okay, you're seated above in heavenly places at the right hand of God in Christ. You are one person with God Almighty. You are the body of Christ who is the second person of God. Okay, you are the body of God. He indwells you. And the situation challenged you? How did that happen? How is that even possible? The person hurt you, challenged you, did something? How is that even possible? But we're so accustomed to that, it seems normal to us. It's actually not normal. We just think it is. Because we're so, we're so used to being weird, we don't even recognize normal. <laughs>